Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, and Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adamah, Shemibar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea, 12 years they had served Chedorlaomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphaim, Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zuzim, and Ham, and Emmon, and Shavah, Karathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. And they turned back and came to En Misfat, which is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim is full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre in the Amorite brother of Eshcol of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, both in his house, born in his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take, uh, that I would not take a, a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Holy, merciful Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that brings life to us, your children. 
Pray that through these words you would bring us life, that you would remind us who we are, who you are, and the great story that is found in your word, the great story of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I hope you can appreciate, I had to practice for hours just trying to get some of those names right. Um, they actually have special classes for that in seminary, you know, the pronunciation. No, I actually pronounced half those words wrong. Never say it to anybody else. They'll know that you were, um, that you've never read the Bible before. Uh, but, you know, recently, you know, my barber that I go to on a regular basis uh, recently started reading the Bible. A couple months ago, he, he started uh, being, being interested in the Bible. He started reading the Bible. He started talking to me about it. He started going to a church that was near his home, and he joined this group, and they were reading um, Revelation. And uh, if you've never read the Bible before, great place to start. One of the most confusing books in all scripture. I recommend it. And not only did he start in Revelation, but he started in the middle of Revelation. Could you imagine starting, first thing you've ever read in the Bible is like the middle, starting chapter 10 of Revelation. And uh, but this is, he started reading. He's like, yeah, it's interesting. He's like, it's really confusing. It's like, yeah, that's confusing for like everybody. Um, so I suggested, what if you suggest to your group to maybe start in Genesis and then maybe read one of the Gospels? And he's like, okay. And so he did, and he's been reading Genesis now, and he's kind of, kind of halfway through it. And a, a couple weeks ago when I went to see him, I was like, how's, how's it going? He's like, it's good. It's a lot easier to read. It's kind of nice to read from the beginning and see things. And he's like, but it's still it's kind of weird. I was like, yeah, it is a little weird. He's like, yeah, you got all these names and these lists of people, and what's that about? And so I tried to explain to him a little bit about that and the tracing the seed and the promise from, from you know, Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And he goes, oh, that's, that's deep. And, uh, and so we had this kind of fun conversation, but it's interesting. I think his experience with scripture as this kind of person that's new to it is how many of us actually feel about scripture. We just think we can't say it. The scripture's kind of weird, um, especially if you go to it thinking, man, I'm having a really bad day. I, I'm going to go read the Bible and it's going to make me feel better today. And you read it and you open up to passages like this and you can't pronounce half the names. You have no idea who these people are, where it's talking about. And you're like, I don't know if that made me feel better or not. We, we go to it kind of expecting it to be a chicken noodle soup for the, for the soul. And, uh, and it doesn't do that for us. And then, you know, like in, in my own personal Bible reading plan, I, I go back and forth in Old and New Testament. I just kind of finished going through First and Second Kings. Um, you know, it's a really bizarre book if you've ever read it. You know, people are killing their parents, um, sacrificing their children, lots of gnarly stuff. If you go there on a bad day, um, trying to be encouraged, you walk away, you're not going to probably be encouraged. You're going to be disgusted. Like, how could God love these people who are doing all this crazy stuff? Um, uh, it, the Bible's surprising to us, if we're honest. Genesis 14 is actually a, a rather strange passage for us. Um, you know, even up until this point, you've been kind of reading about Abram, you've been reading about his story, and you're kind of like, all right, the story's picking up a little bit. This is kind of fun, reading about his family and all these different things. And then all of a sudden, there's this international conflict with all these places and people that we haven't heard of before. It's just completely out of place. And, uh, and I think, though, that as we look at this strange uh, chapter, um, and as the story actually gets weirder as it goes on, um, the question we, we have to ask is, well, what do we do with the Bible then? What do we, what do, we do with its strangeness um, that doesn't actually make us feel good all the time? Well, one, one person's analogy of the scriptures that I really like is, um, is this. The um, author says that the Bible is like one great song. It's it, there's a story of scriptures like a great song where if you create a, a great symphonic 
orchestral piece where you have all these different instruments all serving the same melody and there's different themes that split off through it, but it all kind of returns to the, to the same uh, m- melodic theme. It's a symphonic masterpiece. And so even in these little branch stories that seem to be out of place, they're actually all part of this great song that's all uh, serving this one melody. And the, the one primary melody that all of scriptures point to is the good news of the gospel, that the promised seed in Genesis 3 will come to bear, that the promises in Genesis 1 and 2 will happen, the garden will cover the earth, and everything's kind of serving that theme. And even the weird parts somehow are serving that theme, the good news that Jesus Christ will come into the world to destroy the powers of darkness and bring his kingdom to bear. And so that's how we're going to try to look at this passage this morning and make sense of it. Borrowing from a friend, I'm going to use a, a three-point outline that shows us how this actually points to the gospel. And uh, for those who've taken our membership class, you've heard me uh, use these three points to help define the gospel. Um, but, but the three things we're going to say about the gospel is this, that it's a historical event, the gospel is an announcement of a kingdom and it's an offer of grace. And uh, these are the three things you're going to see in this story. And you might feel like even me saying this, it's a little reach to talk about that from this text. But hopefully by the end you'll be like, oh yeah, I see it. You're not crazy. Um, that's always my goal on a Sunday morning if you not think I'm too crazy. Um, but I think as we do this with this text in Genesis 14, not only will it help us understand this text, but any other weird text you encounter, hopefully uh, it'll give us a, a bigger vision and a, and, a, and a bigger help to understand the whole of the story of Scripture. So first... The gospel is a historical event. The gospel is a historical event. Again, this story here in Abraham begins talking about an international conflict. And you probably picked all this up when I was um, just perfectly reading through all those names. That there's four kings and then the Persian Gulf in, in Babylon. And each of these kings kind of ruled their different area in, in, that, in, in Babylon. And then under them, they had kind of five vassal kings that, that served them and undersaw smaller regions in the kingdom. And it says for 12 years, that system worked. And then all of a sudden, the five under, underlings decided to, re, to revolt. And so these four kings are like, nah, not today. And they get on their horses or whatever they were riding and they go into battle and they, and they crush these five under kings. Um, and, uh, and they take their stuff and their people into captivity. And one of those people that they take into captivity is Lot, who had been uh, living in the kingdom of Sodom. And uh, like I said, I'm sure you already got all that when I was reading the passage. Uh, but, but this is what's happening. Uh, but this kind of passage is so strange to our ears. Like all these names. You know, I know we got lots of, half the church seems to be pregnant right now. You know, maybe you just write out some of these names for you. Maybe one of these names is a candidate for your children. Um, but... It's all these places and people that we, we don't hear about any other, well, any other place in scripture. Most of these names is like, well, do I really care about these people or places? I, I don't, you know, you don't come to this passage in your morning devotions and say, well, that really put my day into perspective. Um, so why is this here? Why, why are passages like this even in scripture? You know, for instance, if I just deleted this and you never heard of this passage and it was just gone from your Bible, would that actually make any difference? Does it, does it actually really matter? What would we really lose? Um, I would say it would matter a lot if we would lose everything because at the core of Christianity is history. Christianity is telling us our history. It's fundamentally a historical 
a religion. Christianity is not a religion that's founded on abstract principles or ideas, but on events that we believe actually happened in history. Events like this battle here. And I don't think I'm overstepping or being hyperbolic to say, if this did not happen, uh, the scriptures would no longer be God's word. Because God's word is truth. And if there are lies in scripture, then it no longer is truth. You know, Jesus himself is the word, the truth incarnate. And so if this isn't true, then Jesus himself is not to be trusted. The good news of Christianity, the good news of the gospel is that it is is historic. It is true. This battle really happened in, I would say, even all of Christianity hinges on battles like this actually happening. Obviously, there's, you know, we might say there's more important events that happened that the Bible points to, like the events of Jesus Christ, right? That he was born, not just born, but born of a virgin, that Jesus lived a life on earth, actually walking and breathing and eating and drinking. But not just any life, he lived a perfect, a righteous life. Jesus himself died, like in some ways, like we're all gonna die. But he didn't stay dead, he rose again. These are historic truths that we believe are true. There are many people today in our culture that will say that stuff doesn't actually matter. Ah, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I don't know, I can't really say for sure. Is all this stuff true? No. But the principles, you know, the, 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 the things that he said seem to be good. Like just love one another as if Jesus didn't say anything else. But, you know, just, just trust his message. You know, I don't know if you've heard this a lot. I hear a lot of people say things like, well, I love Jesus in the Bible, but all those other New Testament writers and Paul, and I don't like those other guys. So I don't follow them. I just do the things that, um, I just like the words of Jesus in the Bible. Which when people say that, they've clearly actually not even read the words of Jesus because they probably wouldn't like his words because they're kind of crazy sometimes. But, you know, Paul himself, you know, what does he say about Jesus in the resurrection? Paul himself says that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we are all wasting our time. Either all of it is true or none of it is true. The gospel is not just an idea, it is historic realities. The gospel, the good news, begins for us in history. The gospel, this is the gospel claim. And as we are told this history, in this history of Jesus in the early church, we're invited to believe not just that the things that are recorded down as quotes, but all the events that surround the life and ministry of Jesus as well. It all is true. So why does this matter for us? I think this is vital, because this teaches us that the gospel is not first and foremost about you and me. The good news is not about our events in history, our actions in history. The good news is the events of God in history, uh, right? The, the, the gospel isn't about our works or our ability to stay strong or be good. It's about something that is far more permanent than that, something that has already been etched in history. As much as you can't change history, even what happened yesterday, let alone thousands of years ago, you cannot change what Jesus has done for you on the cross, It is foundational to the gospel that this has happened and we need this because our ability to always follow God is not good. Our strength and our belief in this is not always strong and solid, but the gospel is good news because it isn't something that depends on us or our actions in history or our goodness in history to be true, but our belief in the gospel uh, is not what makes it real, right? History doesn't need you to believe in it to make it true. It is true because it actually happened. And in a world filled with uncertainties, 
and news cycles that just create more anxiety in our lives about what's gonna happen, you and I need the certainty of history that this is true. Our history, our faith depends on one who has already come, who has already lived, who has died, who has risen again, and you cannot change that no matter how bad your day is, no matter how you feel. You and I need this to be real desperately. We need all of scripture to be historic reality. Chicken noodle soup for the soul might make you feel good for a moment, um, but it, it actually can't save the world from the dominion of darkness and the tyranny of sin. Only the actions of God working in and through the world, working in and through the realities of life in history can do that. And the good news of the gospel is that God has indeed done that. That God is not aloof, far off, but he is actually in the world working in and through history. It has happened. It is sure. And when we come to scriptures, we come to read, when we come to read the great story that is the gospel, how it unfolded through history, that, that story is first and foremost. We need to know it is real. It is true. It is not a fairy tale. Which maybe asks, begs the question, well, that story is true. That's great. But what is that story telling us? What is that story pointing to? What is that story leading to, and um, the, the, I think there's two answers to that question, which are the second two points, and I think both of those answers are actually, you see in this weird character that we come to, we'll come to in a minute, in uh, Melchizedek. Um, but the first thing that this story is telling us is this, that the gospel is an announcement of a kingdom. The gospel is an announcement of a kingdom, right? The, the word, even in this passage, the word king uh, shows up 28 times. Uh, this is clearly a, one of the primary focuses here is that kingdoms and kings are being established all over the known world as you know, humanity continues to spread and grow. Uh, these kingdoms are growing and what do kings do? But uh, kings rule over a place, right? Kings establish justice. They have subjects and land that they oversee. And for these kings at this moment, it's not going very well because people are rebelling against them and they have to go and, and solve that. Even if you remember Abraham, like the great promise made to Abraham is actually a kingdom. Although he doesn't yet inhabit it yet and rule over it, um, he's in the process of building this kingdom. And what's interesting in Genesis 14 is this is the only military action that you see Abraham undertake in all of scripture. And it's a wild story. In verse 14, I picked the one with the least names to read back to you. Um, in verse 14, it says this, when... Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. He led forth his uh, trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. This is a crazy story. So Abram takes 318 men from his household, divides up his forces in the night, and goes and defeats these great kings. These four kings. These are four kings who had just defeated five kings, right? So these aren't like, these are not weak kings. They beat the bigger army just a second ago. And now Abram goes and outsmarts them with just a handful of, of men in the night and destroys them and crushes them. 318 men defeating the great kings of Babylon. And I think one of the fun, this is maybe a little bit of an aside, but it was too fun not to tell you, is that in this story, you actually find a mini story of Israel happening. Abraham is almost playing out the life of Israel before Israel does. This is what they're gonna one day do. You know, one day they're gonna be taken out of the land by Babylon. 
by these same people. And they're gonna get, and then, and then they're gonna actually be able to go and take the land back from Babylon and establish a kingdom and, and, the, and, and rule there. And as Abraham points to Israel's future reality, I think we're being shown that Abraham is better than the kings of the earth. God's kingdom is better than the kingdoms of this earth. It's stronger. As he defeats them with just a few men, this just gives us a glimpse at the strength of God. His kingdom, his plans, his purposes cannot be stopped, no matter how strong the opposition might seem. And this is the good news of the gospel, that it's the announcement of this kingdom that is coming, that is greater than the kingdoms of this earth. And I mean, this actually gives us some foresight into even the work of Christ, right? Jesus, too, he takes just a few men, 12 of them, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. We play in this same story. What does he do with those 12 men? He defeats the mighty powers of Satan. The father of Babylon is destroyed. And from those few, his kingdom is now spreading in the world as the church continues to grow and spread. Uh, I think this, this theme of kingdom plays out even more heavenly as we, the story is interrupted by this strange, strange character, Melchizedek. Um, this is the only place that you find Melchizedek speaking in all of scripture. He's mentioned again in the Psalms, uh, mentioned again in Hebrews, um, kind of giving, shedding some light on him, but he's a strange character that interrupts the story out of nowhere. In fact, you could even just cut this little snippet um, out of this story and, this, and it would read fine. Uh, it would make a lot of sense, but out of nowhere this man comes. Look here, back at verse 17. It says, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. This is kind of interesting. It's kind of reinforcing the scope of Abram's victory over the Babylonian kings. And it says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So you get this character. So much is happening here. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Hebrews 7 helps us shed some light. Hebrews 7.3 says this about Melchizedek. It says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. You know, what's interesting about that is, you know, Genesis itself is kind of broken up following basically 10 different genealogies. So it's a book showing us, you know, our history, where people come from, setting up, establishing those lines. And here we have this man that comes from nobody. He has no father, no mother, no beginning, no end. He's from a city called Salem. Now, uh, Hebrews 7.2 translates that word um, as peace. It's kind of the root of the word shalom. This city of peace is where he comes from, uh, which is likely Jerusalem, right? Jeru, Salem. There's He's from this city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God. He is the king of peace. Not only that, his, his name itself, Melchizedek, means my king is righteous. He is the king of righteousness, oh, reigning over the city of peace. He has no beginning or end. Who is this man? Who is uh, this man that Abram meets along the way? You know, throughout history, people have given us all sorts of strange theories you're going to get my strange theory in a minute. I think Hebrews helps us to see at least, bare minimum, he is a type of Christ. I mean, we even find that it says that Jesus comes in the line of Melchizedek. So he's at least a type of Christ, if not Christ himself in the flesh in that moment, which is definitely where I 
Eileen, um, as you read this, it just reeks of this is what Jesus does. He comes and what does Jesus do? He feeds us bread and wine, right? Um, but even if it's not Jesus, it's a type of Jesus clearly pointing us to his work. Um, and Abraham, after he defeats these great kings of the world, comes into this land and he pays homage to this man, giving him a tenth of everything. And it's not, he doesn't have to, he's never told to, he's never asked to. But he does it because he is representing the great kingdom of God that is being established on earth. You know, the contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God that's representing this Melchizedek are on full display. Right? The kingdoms of the world are, are wicked. They, they have rebellion. They have uprisings uh, versus this kingdom of peace and righteousness. The, the good news is that the kingdoms of evil and justice and rebellion, no matter how strong, no matter how great they look, they will not win, but they will be defeated by peace because the king of peace is stronger. And you and I need to hear this gospel truth that God is indeed building this kingdom of peace and righteousness. That there is a king who stands above and beyond all kings of this world. He stands beyond all creation. He stands in the order of Melchizedek. His kingdom has no beginning or end, no boundaries. He has no father or mother uh, in the sense of being born. Uh, he is the first and the last. He comes to the seed of Abraham and his name is Jesus. And what makes this good news is that it means all the injustice of the world will one day cease. All the evil, vile wickedness that you see, all the sickness, disease, death, dying, one day will be no more. And Jesus and his kingdom of righteousness and peace will reign from east to west, from north to south, the entire creation. Because what do kings do? They enact justice. Good ones rule justly and there is no better ruler than that person of Christ. And this is what Melchizedek points us to, the good news of the king and the kingdom that is coming to destroy all the kings and the kingdoms of this world. And this is what is promised in the gospel from the beginning. First words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what he has come to finish. And he began here establishing in Abraham and his family that through his family, his kingdom would cover the earth. So strong as the kingdoms of this earth feel at times, they are flimsy at best. They will too fade like Babylon did, like Assyria did, like Rome did, and every great nation of old has done, and all the nations that think they're bigger than God will do to the, in the future. God's kingdom is eternal. Because our king has no beginning. He has no end. He is the creator and sustainer of all that is. Uh, but not only do we have this great king ruling over us, bringing us this kingdom, but also in Melchizedek, what we find is our king is our priest as well. well. While kings rule with justice, priests mediate the grace of God to their people. This is the third and final thing we see here is that the gospel is an offer of grace. The gospel is an offer of grace. I'll read verse 18 again. It says this, that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, in parentheses, he was a priest of God most high. Melchizedek was the great king and the priest. Uh, this is important because, right, like I said, priest duty, what they did was, was to mediate grace and mercy to people. Right? Priests exist because we struggle to obey kings. We're unjust. We don't keep the laws. So what happens? Well, we need priests to come and extend compassion and to put the penalty of our crimes on sacrifices so that we can be forgiven and walk in mercy and grace and have peace with the king even though we don't always like the king. 
And so this priest does that. Mediates grace to Abram, puts out bread and wine. He feeds him. And then he, he prays this blessing over him. What's striking here is that Melchizedek doesn't demand anything from Abram. He comes in, he's the, the blessing priest. He comes in blessing, serving, feeding. Melchizedek is doing the work. The only thing Abraham does is he responds, giving a tithe, which is a tenth of all that he, his possessions. Not because there's any demand on him to do so. It's not in the text. There's no demand for him to do that. It is a, is a response of a heart that understands gratitude. And you see this, I think, strikingly, when you see the opposite in the king of Sodom who comes. And what does he say? Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Uh, even the Hebrew is a little stronger. It's just, it's a demanding of, of Abraham. He comes demanding stuff from him. Give me my stuff back. Um, but uh, one of the things that's happening in kind of the subtext here is he actually wants to get, um, he, what he's trying to really do is, is create, is to make Abraham a vassal of himself. Right, just as the king of Sodom, and Sodom has been under other kings, he's trying to get Abraham to be under him so he can control him and lord it over him. Uh, but Abraham says, no, I'm, I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to give you even a strap of my sandal. Um, this is almost another fall opportunity for a fall narrative. Yet Abraham withstands the temptation. He says, no, I'm going to pay homage to my, to my king Melchizedek instead. He chooses the good king, the blessing king who feeds over the evil one with his list of demands. He receives the grace that demands nothing of him. And this is, this is what makes the gospel good for us, is that it's free. It's also what makes it hard for us, is that it's free. Um, it isn't offered based on your goodness, no matter how good you think you may be. It isn't on your strength of character, no matter how strong your character may or may not be. It's not based out of anything you need to do to earn it, but simply out of the goodness of God's character and goodness. God's grace demands nothing for you. There's a free hour, and it has to be free, because if it was gonna charge you something, you can never afford the price. And this is where we see that, that this great offer of, of grace is offered from both our priest and our king. Because our king is also a priest, he can enact justice, and he can grant pardon and forgiveness. He is both the lion and the lamb, and this is, who Jesus is. He comes in, in this line of this king priest and he displays for us this two-formed role perfectly in the passion narrative on the cross. Right, in, the, in the passion narrative, you get this constant reference back to the kingship of Christ and it's done sometimes in some mocking ways, but it's, it's so strong there uh, that, that he is the, the, the king even as he comes as this sacrificial lamb. And, you know, kings can do whatever they want, and yet Jesus, this lion, marches as this lamb to the slaughter, not opening his mouth. And you see this in some of the language in Pilate, where he says, do you want Brabus? Do you want me to release Brabus to you, or do you want, do you want the king of the Jews? Um, and then what does Caesar do? He, he, he puts a crown of thorns. He says, behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? And they say, no, we have no king but Caesar, right? And then he Put, what's, what's the sign he puts up over his head that here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. The entire narrative of the passion is a, about Jesus as the king, but also as the priest. Because he's the priest who come, becomes the sacrifice that we need to experience grace. This is why we need a, a, a priest, because you and I hate the king. 
Um, we don't want to submit to him. And Jesus is the ultimate priest king, the lion and the lamb, both the bringer of justice and peace, who stands in the order of Melchizedek, blessing, feeding his people, the king of righteousness, and the kingdom of shalom, the kingdom of peace. And Jesus comes to offer pardon to all who desire to come into his kingdom. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. The good news of the gospel is that he doesn't come with a list of demands for us to enter his kingdom. He doesn't say, well, give me some of your stuff and then we'll, you can come in and you can pay, pay homage to me. He comes actually taking the demands for us. He comes taking the cost for coming into his kingdom on himself. This is how good our kingly priest is, Christ is. He takes all the demands of the law, its effects. He takes the price of, of admission into his kingdom on himself. All the shame you feel in your sin, all the wrestling of anxiety that you worry about at night, all the baggage that you carry around with you, he takes all of that weight. And he doesn't just make it disappear like it's magic and it doesn't cost him anything, but he actually puts it on himself, nailing it to the cross because the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus puts that death on himself and all the effects of death, which is, you know, whether it's relational death, physical death, spiritual death, all those different effects of death that impact all of our lives. He takes all of that on himself, nails it to the cross, paying that price himself, dying. And then he rises again, conquering that death. And then he looks to you and I, and what does he do? He offers us food to eat. He says, come eat, drink, be filled with goodness and mercy. Here's this cup, here's this bread, and this cup and bread that we feast on is his own body. And as we feast on that, as we drink his blood, it unites us to him. And it unites us to his grace and his mercy, helping us know that our sin is truly gone. It truly was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. The gospel is the good news of this offer of grace. So here in this bizarre story in Genesis 14, we see this gospel story on display, that it is history that it really happened and it's about a kingdom that is coming into this world that often looks unimpressive like 318 men versus armies, 12 disciples versus the, the powers of darkness, but it comes and it destroys the kingdoms of the world and offers pardons and grace to all who would enter. And he does this without putting demands on you because Jesus tells us my yoke is easy, my burden is light. All that he requires of you is that you repent and you believe and you can enter his kingdom. He is the, the good king that you have been looking for your entire life. He is the peace that you long for and you search for in your day-to-day's living. He knows you, he protects you, he feeds you, and even when you wrong him, he is rich in mercy and forgiveness. As you live in his kingdom, he transforms you and sends you out into the world that everyone might know about his goodness. Now, we're all desperate for this kind of king. And, you know, when you look at the chaos of the world where everyone wants to be their own kings, everyone wants to be their own ruler, you know, what's the fruit of our world? Is it peace? Is it justice? Is it righteousness? Is it a world we like to live in? Of course not. It's chaotic. Because we can't be our own kings. It's only in submission to Christ, the one great true king, the only coming to Christ as our great king and priest can solve our problem and bring us peace. He's inviting us to come to him this morning. And if maybe you're here and you've never actually believed that this is true. You've never believed that this is, book is about any true things. Maybe it's some good ideas and makes you a good person, but that's about it. Or 
Or, or maybe you're here and you've never submitted yourself to Jesus as the king. You've never listened to, to his rule in your life. Um, you've always seen it as a burden and not as a taking of burden. You've never accepted his offer of grace. If that's you this morning, and if Jesus sounds good to you this morning, that's because the spirit of God is saying that he is good. All you need to do is pray. Call out to him. Say, I believe. Say, you are the king. You are the priest. Apart from you, I have no life. Uh, all you have to do is ask. And you can enter into his kingdom. And maybe you're here and you walk with Christ. You believe in him. And you've maybe walked with him for a long time. Well, it's asking maybe some uncomfortable questions for yourself. Uh, saying, where in your life do you actually not submit to the king? What are those areas of life that you want to be your own ruler? You want to do your own thing that you know maybe it's wrong, maybe you shouldn't do it, and yet you're going to do it anyways because you want to. Where are all those places? You, those are usually the things that you kind of know, if we're honest. <laughs> we have them, right? Those places we know, but we kind of ignore it. This is an invitation to not ignore it, but to repent. Bring those places into submission under him. Where are those places that you struggle to accept grace? Where are those places that you try to earn your salvation? I'm just going to do better, and then I can earn it. Where you, you don't confess your sin, you don't live in the light, but you hide it, and you try to, try to make way on your own. Putting that extra burden on yourself to earn this great gift. Where are those places where you don't trust the grace and mercy of God to forgive your sins? This is an invitation to bring those places out into the light. To experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus tells us. We all desire rest. There's only one place you can find it. Repent. Turn to Christ, your great priest and your great king. He longs for you to, to feast with him. He longs for you to come to, to this table so that he can bless you. Our king is the blessing king. May we submit all our lives to Christ the king and feast richly on him. Amen. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks that you are the great priest, that you are the great king. I pray that you would stir our hearts to turn to you in all of life, to bring all of our life under your rule, under your guidance, to experience the great mercy and grace that is found in you. Do this powerful work by the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.